My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer America. I you want to make friends. I'm just trying to save you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach, put these days in context. Call me, 1-800-743-CBC. Tweet me, at Jim Kramer. Well, there you go. Another one-day bullish wonder. I mean, that's how you got to look at things. These big runs like the one we had yesterday. Because today's repeal, Dow plunging 404 points. S&P plummeting 2.37%. NASDAQ knows not be 3.08%. Was a painful reminder the house of pain. that you can't pay up for anything, anything in this market, until the Fed's done ruining it or tightening it, if you want to be more... Uh, let's say refined. It's just not worth the risk in a market this fragile. Stocks fall apart on any number of things. A tick down in oil, a tick up in interest rates, a, a slight gain in the dollar. I mean, that is a brutal gauntlet for any market to traverse. And not only that, it's counterintuitive because it is good news for inflation when oil goes down. And inflation is the reason why we are in such a jam to begin with. As I always say, we're stuck in this bear market until the Fed gets this economy where they want it to go, a place with much lower inflation, even if it comes at the price of much slower or no growth. You can't fight the Fed, can't fight the tape, can't fight the Fed. And anyone who tries does get crushed, even if they make some money in one day, like yesterday. Of course, it it, it doesn't happen daily. Sometimes you get a day where it's so obvious, like yesterday, that too many people were betting against the market and not enough real sellers surfaced, allowing us to rally like we did in Thursday's session. But it didn't mean the sellers vanished. It just meant they were taking a temporary breather. I think they gathered themselves, were shocked to see that the market was up yesterday, and came in and flooded the market sell, with sell, 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 Yeah, that's what happened today. We, oil went down a bit, dollar rallied. And they unload on all stocks, especially tech, which is the most sensitive to the dollar and crude oil. I told you it's counterintuitive. And then rates did ultimately go higher, too, and the selling grew even more intense throughout the day. It is a nightmare. You just can't build on quicksand. So we have to ask ourselves, will next week be any different? I think we need to go to the game plan with an eye. And I have to tell you, it is a jaundiced eye to how this market doesn't seem to have any staying power. Because so many people went out and so few people really went in. Uh, knowing that bonds now offer a much more competitive alternative to stocks. Look, you're still getting that four and a half. I told you I like that for the two year. Monday starts off with Bank of America. Now, you know, if it's as good as Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan were this morning, maybe the financials can actually fill the gaping leadership vacuum in this market. Remember, it was led by tech for a very long time. Now that just takes us lower. Bank of America has a gigantic deposit base, so they should be able to report a terrific number in this environment. But it might not matter to the stock if the dollar or bonds or oil go in the wrong direction. I know it's plain silly, but it's the world we're in. Tuesday, we might get one more financial that could be interesting. 
Goldman Sachs, where I used to work. It could be a tough one because so much of Goldman's business is what we call transaction-oriented, not savings-oriented. And there simply haven't been a lot of transactions this year. What is the not-so-hot quarter from Morgan Stanley this morning? Now, I'm still looking for a good bottom-line number from Goldman, though, because CEO David Solomon has taken quick action to stem the bleeding from the decline in his capital markets business. Plus, this stock is crazy cheap, maybe the cheapest I have ever seen it be. Now, Johnson & Johnson reports, too. And I expect it to be much more of an intro to the post-breakup Johnson & Johnson, the low-tech consumer pr- uh, product business, think Band-Aids, and the high-tech medical device and pharma business. I think this breakup is going to unlock a ton of value, which is why we have a big position in J&J for the Chapel Trust. As I said in yesterday's inve- investing club meeting, which, by the way, you should go listen to. It was pretty funny. Got a lot of positive comments. It remains one of my favorite stocks. After the close, we get some long-awaited results from Netflix, where they'll likely tell us more about their cheaper ad-supported tier. Right now, it sounds like they'll have a radical number of commercials, but I think they have enough horse sense to avoid going overboard. Wednesday, we get a number that's hard to interpret, and that's housing starts. Get this. I've been working on this all day. I can't tell that we need a lot more houses so the price of homes comes down because of supply, or a lot fewer because we mean that the builders are very worried about housing and they know the business. But here's what I do know. Unless we get more houses for sale and prices break, the Fed will keep tightening until the buyers disappear and the sellers sell at any price, which is their ultimate goal at the Fed. Procter & Gamble reports before the opening, and everybody tells me it's going to be horrible. The stock's been miserable. Hey, maybe they're right, but I'm betting the stock will go up anyway because there are so many short sellers betting against this one. We own it for the trust because we think it has fallen too much already, and also the headwind of commodities is about to turn into a tailwind. After the close, we hear from the most closely watched company in the universe, and that is Tesla. Yeah, Tesla. Now, in some ways, Tesla kind of reminds me of Bitcoin. It's come down to a level where the buyers won't stop coming in to support it. I, I, I think they'll be out there in full force no matter what Tesla reports. I actually care about the numbers, though, and I think they'll be great because Tesla actually has inventory to sell and they don't need to advertise it. But the stock's become a real disappointment. Here's a shocker. Do you know that, that Tesla's down 41% for the year? We also get results from another conundrum. That's IBM. I don't know whether they'll be able to put up the numbers they need to get the market excited about this one. Management strategy, I think, is a sound one, betting heavily on a hybrid cloud and analytics. But that's become a hated sector. I expect to hear a lot of whispering about the size of that dividend, which produces a 5.4% yield. That's very high for a tech stock. Maybe too high? The most important quarter of the week may be from a little one that most people don't know. And that's LAM Research. Now, I want to introduce you to this because it is the best semiconductor capital equipment maker out there. You need their machines to make semiconductors. This industry has become in the crosshairs of the Biden administration because they want to make it more difficult for the Chinese military to manufacture high-tech chips. If LAM says they're seeing cutbacks similar to what we heard from Applied Materials, AMAT, this week, then the whole semiconductor world is going to have another move down. That's what t- it doesn't stop. It just doesn't stop. All right, Thursday we hear from AT&T. Now, I want so badly for it not to be disappointing because so many people still own this from, from the old days. Can they pull it off? They haven't yet. Maybe this time will be different, but I'm skeptical. Down here, though, at 14, I can't be as negative as I was much higher. And I should have said I can't be as right as I was because, man, was I ever right. I took a lot of heat on that one. That's okay. I, I, I never mind taking the heat. Many are worried about that commerce is slowing because of the Fed's aggressive rate hikes. But you know who has the thriving, who has the finger on the thriving economy or not thriving economy? 
I say it's a big railroad like Union Pacific. And I added this to this because I think it's really important to know how the rails are doing. I am worried about weakness because it will reverberate through the stocks of their customers. So I did put it up there. But I am, uh, I'd say, a big believer in Union Pacific anyway. Now, Whirlpool intrigues me because it's got a European business that is maybe for sale and it could be worth a giant part of the whole company. If they sell it, the the stock's a massive buy. That said, Whirlpool's a dog of late because higher interest rates dampen the renovation business. Uh, It is just real cheap, though. Okay, finally, we end up here Friday. Three key large companies, Verizon, American Express, and Schlumberger, often mispronounced Schlumberger, the big oil service outfit. Verizon trades terribly. Its stock is signaling that the business continues to wilt in the face of tough competition from Kramer fave T-Mobile. American Express stock has been dragged down by the credit cohort, yet I think it's the best in class, and I think we'll have a good quarter. Finally, let's end on what could be the best quarter, which is slob, SLB. It's oil. If oil stands pat, there will be a new investment cycle that will spur tremendous momentum for this great quarter. This, by the way, was one of the single best quarters we had in the previous reporting season. Bottom line, there are dozens of other important companies reporting this week, but you need to understand that in this environment, individual companies aren't the only thing that matters anymore. The market's dominated by the tick, tick, tick of bonds, oil, and the dollar. So remember, if we have a big up day like yesterday, that is a chance to do something. Because there probably won't be any follow-through. That is indeed the story on the bear market of 2022. Suzanne in Minnesota. Suzanne. Hi. <laughs> oh, this is great. Have you ever been to Minnesota? To where? To Minnesota? Minnesota? You kidding me? I've been, in, I've been in every aspect of Minnesota. I got lakes oh. there, and I was there for the Super Bowl. I was there in 20, I mean, really. I mean, I was there for the greatest day in history when the Eagles about, won. So I'm proud about, Minnesota. How about Bob Dylan's? How about Bob Dylan's hometown? Highway 64. I hitchhiked on Highway 64. I'm all over him, too. Bob Zimmerman (laughs) back then. What else? What else? (laughs) Well, I want to know if you drink lots of coffee. I'm wondering if if I should buy Starbucks. No, I had a Dunkin' Donuts later in the afternoon because Ben Stoto said, let's break the whole Starbucks orthodoxy. What's going on? I don't know. Do you think I should buy it? What? The Dunkin' Donuts? that's, That's private. Oh, Starbucks. Starbucks. Yes. Yes. Starbucks is kidding. I mean, I just did that to just to irritate Howard Schultz for a few jokes. I think Starbucks is very inexpensive and you should buy it. And thank you for those nice Minnesota comments. This market's dominated by bonds, oil, the dollar. So remember, if we have a big update like yesterday, take some chance to do some selling. Oh, man, buddy, tonight, the CPI has become one of the most important measures in this market. But how well do you really understand the data? I'm pulling back the curtain on the numbers and sharing all you need to know to become a better investor. Then earnings season, yes, has officially begun with the big banks offering up the ports. I'm running through the numbers discussing what it should mean for all the sector, including Bank of America on Monday. And oil continues to be one of the most watched corners of the market. But amid a host of headwinds, what can investors expect for the commodities future? I'm discussing with an oil expert, Rusty Brazil. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com.
After yesterday's crazy action, where the market initially took a dive in response to an overheated consumer price index number before roaring back with a vengeance, it's become clear that the CPI is now the single most important monthly data point in this market, even eclipsing the Labor Department's non-farm payroll report, at least for the moment. You hear about the CPI endlessly because we're all worried about inflation. But what the heck does the number actually represent? Everybody knows the CPI measures consumer inflation. And you know whether the last few readings were overheated or benign. But most home gamers probably don't have a ton of insight into what's happening underneath. And that's something you definitely need to know when the market's having such wild swings in response to a previously poor metric. That's why tonight i got to drill down into what the consumer price index really is so you can understand what it means. And then, and then look over the individual components to give you a more granular sense of where inflation's at and its worst and where things are going in the right direction. Some are, some aren't. So let's start with what it is. The CPI measures changes in prices for a basket of goods and services aimed at urban consumers. Those interesting, urban. The Bureau of Labor Statistics collects this data from 75 municipalities, 23,000 retailers or service establishments, and 50,000 landlords and tenants. So it's pretty good pastiche. More important, the CPI is not merely some data point. This number has real-world significance because so many other things are actually pegged to it. For example, Social Security has a cost-of-living adjustment that's tied to the CPI. Just yesterday, we learned that there'll be an 8.7% increase in Social Security next year to offset inflation. That's all, down to, that's all down to the hot CPI readings we've been getting. Same goes for food stamps and many union contracts. What's it really measuring, though? There's tons of stuff in here, but the Bureau of Labor Statistics divides them into four big categories. You've got food, which is split at, into at home and away from home. Then there's energy, which includes both energy commodities like gasoline and energy services like electricity. On top of that, there are two catch-all categories. All items list food and energy, meaning any other kinds of goods, cars, trucks, apparel, medical products, you name it. The other catch-all, services, less energy services, meaning shelter, transportation, medical care, and other services. You know why no one goes into this? Of course, it's too hard, but we're going to go into it because hard sometimes determines things. Now, the Consumer Price Index gets reported in lots of different ways. They give you a year-over-year number that everyone focuses on. They give you a month-over-month number that I find awful illuminating. They give you the everything number and also the core CPI, which is everything except food and energy, because they tend to be a lot more volatile. But, of course, they're actually the heart of inflation in this market. For example, last month, the overall Consumer Price Index was up 8.2% year-over-year and 0.4% versus August. The core CPI was up 6.6% year-over-year, yet it had a 0.6% increase versus August. You can take a look at the action, both at CPI and core CPI, for the last year. I mean, obviously, this is a terrible chart, right? It's just pretty much straight up. Yesterday's set of numbers weren't good by any stretch of the imagination. The experts were only expecting 8.1%, so 8.2% was a disappointment. However, there was one bright spot here. The year-over-year growth in inflation seems to have peaked in June, at 9.1%. So you can see, we got peak, right? It came down to 85 in July, then 83 in August, and now 82 in September. So it's not like it's going completely in the wrong direction. Unfortunately, that's all from the peak in commodity prices. When you look at the core CPI, the inflation number for everything that's not food or energy, it's still actually heating up. That's right, getting stronger. That 6.6% increase for September was actually the highest year-over-year core inflation reading since 1982, prompting a wave of headlines about the worst core inflation in 40 years. 
Now, it didn't hurt the stock market because so many people were short. Betting would be bad, and then they had to cover. But you saw it happen today in the market. It unwound. Given that so much of our inflation problem comes down to food and energy costs, though, I think the core number is the wrong one to focus on. And when you look at the overall CPI numbers on a month-over-month basis, September's 0.4 increase simply isn't that bad, okay? Just look at the numbers from the last 12 months. At the worst point this, this year, we were seeing monthly inflation of more than 1%. So while yesterday's number was hotter than expected and a step in the wrong direction after cooler month-over-month increases in July and August, it still wasn't as bad as the increases we were seeing in the spring. So now what we're going to do is leave this behind, and we're going to drill down into the components. Look, I want you to know this stuff. I mean, I'm sure some people say, Jim, why are you bothering? We just want stock, stock, stock. But this is what's controlling the Fed right now. So I'm giving it to you. I look over all these big categories. There are a few bright spots. Energy as a whole has been falling for, uh, for three straight months. It was down again today, by the way. Energy is down 2.1% month over month in September. It's actually oil's down actually a dollar per barrel since that OPEC plus hike. Remember when they cut and we all thought it was going to hike prices? It's actually falling a dollar. Now, I also like that used, price, used car and truck prices have been down for three straight months. I think those prices uh, keep falling because every time the Fed tightens, it's more expensive to get financing. And yes, they're getting some of the parts they need to make more cars. Third, apparel's begun to get hit, down 0.3%. I'm betting there's more to come here because there's a massive inventory glut in retail. It's one of the reasons why the charitable trust owns TJX, by the way. Unfortunately, there's no shortage of bad news in these numbers. Food remains a huge problem. It's up 0.8% versus August. I still like the agricultural stocks. I I think that they are terrific to own. We know the food companies are starting to see big savings from lower commodity costs, although it takes some time for their contracts to roll over. We need them to pass those savings on to the consumer, something that just hasn't happened yet, and it won't happen until their customers force them to. Utility gas service is stubbornly high, too, although that's tough to complain about when Europe's got energy shortages all over the place. By comparison, our natural gas cost is next to nothing. Some of the worst inflation was in services, which includes shelter, a 0.7% month over month. That's no good. No improvement there at all. Other than piped gas, the single worst line in the CPI is transportation services. That was up 1.9%, something that should come as no surprise to anyone who's tried to book a flight lately. No wonder Delta Air reported a magnificent quarter yesterday. I mean, this is where prices are just going too high. And this remember, this experiential service economy, people going where after COVID ended. Well, we know what COVID's still on, but you know what I mean. The wave of COVID doesn't scare people as much as it used to. Finally, medical care services out of nowhere turned into the hottest reading in ages, up 1% month over month. This was stunning, people. Maybe it's time to start looking at the med tech or hospital stocks again, especially because healthcare has the added advantage of being highly resistant to a Fed-mandated recession. United Health had a fantastic number this very morning. Here's the bottom line. When you drill down into yesterday's CPI reading, it's not as horrific as the headlines might lead you to believe. Overall, inflation is very high, but it's still moving in the right direction. It's just not going nearly fast enough for the Fed, which is why you have to steal yourself for more big rate hikes, as Jerome Powell brings the pain in order to slow down these prices, but also the economy. Mad Money is back after the break. Coming up, it's one way to wrap your head around those Fed games. Take an interest in bank earnings with Kramer next.
In the first week of every earnings season, PepsiCo kicks things off. In that nice quarter, by the way. And then we hear from a host of the biggest banks, all of which can tell you a great deal about both the financial industry and the rest of the economy. So every three months, I like to give you a rundown of the major banks because they set the stage for the rest of the earnings season, and they are a huge part of commerce in this country. This morning alone, we got results from J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, Morgan Stanley, and Citigroup, four of the six largest banks in America, with the other two coming early next week. And you know what? The numbers were, by and large, pretty good, but they need some explanation. Let's start with the one that reported at 6.45 a.m. today. Let's start with J.P. Morgan. This morning, the numbers were... They were stunningly strong. I say surprising because if you spent any time listening to CEO Jamie Dimon recently, you know that he's painted a pretty negative picture of of both the U.S. and the global economy. Although I think he's actually, I don't say he's misquoted. That wouldn't be right. I think he didn't put the right nuance on it. I don't think he meant to say how negative things were. Because he sure didn't today. He did a great job of setting the bar low, though, with the stock plunging from $173 at its peak a year ago to around $109 at the close yesterday. That's a remarkable decline. But then J.P. Morgan delivered a terrific set of numbers. This was a clean beat with a 10% revenue growth year over year and the earnings coming in at $3.12 per share. That was $0.22 higher than expected. While the corporate investment banking business struggled, J.P. Morgan's cleaning up in, in consumer and community banking. It's up 14%. Commercial banking is up 21%. Those are astounding numbers. I've been telling you that the banks make a fortune when the Federal Reserve raises interest rates because they can take your deposits, which they pay next to nothing for, and then invest them in short-term treasuries to get a much higher risk-free return. So it was no wonder that J.P. Morgan's net interest income shot up 51% when you exclude the market's business. When you compare it to the expectations, every business line was better. The only fly in the ointment was slightly higher than expected provisions for credit losses. But there was enough strength elsewhere to offset the damage from that minor issue. And remember, that's some of that's just what they want to please the government doing. You know, but it's, it, it's not because there is real elevation. While some of J.P. Morgan's businesses weren't perfect, like investment banking or home lending, these were areas of softness that really everybody knew about going in. While Jamie Dimon's commentary was somewhat guarded, he acknowledged that the American consumers are still spending and their balance sheets remain solid. He certainly worried about the Fed bringing down the hammer. Uh, but again, that's not a surprise to anyone. So it was just kind of a nice quarter. Now, it could have been better. Uh, I would have preferred if J.P. Morgan, for instance, had announced a gigantic buyback. It suspended that a few months ago. I think that buyback returns nicely next year. But overall, it was a very solid set of numbers with a strong performance from their core banking operation and no big negatives to speak of. I was very happy with it. Hence why the stock could rally nearly two bucks, even in the face of a terrible day. One dollar was up four bucks, but the market was just awful today. Next up, not long uh, after we heard from J.P. Morgan, we got the results from Wells Fargo which we own for the Chapel Trust, because I like it as a comeback story. And once again, the quarter was amazingly strong. Wells gave you a very nice top and bottom line beat, driven by rapidly rising net interest margins and management's cost-cutting efforts. And that's Charlie Scharf, the CEO, who knows how to cut costs better than anyone in banking. And everybody in banking, I think, would admit that. Even better, Wells raised their full-year net interest income forecast, looking for 24% growth versus 2021 uh, when it was up only at 20%. Consumer banking solid, uh, even as the mortgage business is kind of 
gotten pretty awful. Commercial banking is on fire. Even their corporate and investment banking business, investment banking, that's new for them. They were involved in the Albertson deal, the Kroger-Albertson deal. It's booming, mostly because they're not exposed to the weaker parts of investment banking like J.P. Morgan is. The reason we own Wells Fargo for the trust, besides their expense control efforts, is that they've got more interest rate exposure than most of their peers. That's very good in an environment, again, where the Fed's tightening. However, people have been worried about the other consequences of rate hikes. People losing their jobs, can't pay their bills, defaulting their obligations, resulting in higher percentage of bad loans. While Wells saw its provision for credit losses come in higher than expected, they weren't that much higher. The strength in their net interest income is more than enough to offset the damage from the very puny amount of bad loans. That was a great loan story. Now, I remain a believer here. Management's executing incredibly well. I think the story will only get better as rates go higher and as the year goes on by Wells Fargo. All right, now, how about one that I got wrong? Morgan Stanley. This is another one that we own for the Chapel Trust, and we got slammed today as the stock plunged more than 5%. I think the market overreacted. You could, I think there's a lot of nitpicking. I could give you another alternative for every single one of the lines that were bad, but it was a tough time to be an investment bank, even when you're spent years pivoting toward a more consistent asset management-based business model. And really, uh, investment banking is a much smaller part of the operation. Morgan Stanley reported both a revenue shortfall and a small earnings miss. That, I, that was bad. Their institutional securities business, which includes investment banking and trading, awful. Their wealth management business came in a little worse than expected, too. While Morgan Stanley's net interest income was up 22%, I like that, it's a, sm- it's a much smaller piece of the pie for them than it is for, say, uh, J.P. Morgan or Wells Fargo. This was indeed a rough quarter. I think Morgan Stanley can eventually thrive once the markets even out. But until then, you got to be patient in this one. We keep holding it for the travel trust because we like the generous dividend, which now yields 4.1%, and the big buyback, the biggest of all these. We would have sold it a long time ago if CEO James Gorman hadn't diversified away from investment banking and into the less volatile wealth management space. We were certainly wrong about this quarter, though. I admit that. You have to own that. But there were a lot of little items that kept the company from shining. That's why I think it's safe to buy at 75 But you may say, Jim, you told us you loved it, and so you have every reason to be critical of me about this. Fourth, we heard from Citi, which I don't talk about much. It's the redheaded stepchild of the major banks, a serial disappointment with an ever-shrinking valuation. Yet when Citi reported this morning, they gave you a modest revenue beat and a pretty substantial earnings beat. Most of that strength came from higher net interest margins, a total gift from the Fed. Citi has an investment banking division that's real ugly right now. It's still terrible, aside from bonds, which really picked up for all of these guys. On top of that, management reiterated the solid full-year forecast. I like that. Stock managed to rally a bit today in response, but I've got to tell you, I've, I have become a Citi group skeptic now for almost two decades. We've seen Citi rally in response to earnings a number of times, including a magnificent 13% gain after they reported the last quarter of July. And then you know what happened. The gains quickly faded and the stock came right back down and I didn't want to be affiliated with it. While Citi cleared a low bar today, I'd much rather own the uh, other banks that have also been hammered based on misplaced worries about a Fed-mandated slowdown, even as they've some of the biggest beneficiaries from higher rates. So let's put it all together. Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan were impressive. And I'd be excited by Citi's numbers if this one hadn't wrecked so many people who bought it after the last quarter or after the last years. The only real downer was Morgan Stanley. 
I thought James Gorman sounded pretty confident when he, when he was on the show a few weeks ago. So today's numbers did indeed come as a surprise to me. Then again, the stock's real cheap, and they've got a great franchise with a big buyback. They bought back a ton of stock. So I'm not going to get too negative at what I think is the bottom. Here's the bottom line. We got good quarters from three of the four major banks that reported today. I say three out of four ain't bad, and I'm holding tight with Morgan Stanley. If the home market hadn't already roared yesterday, I think we could have had a nice rally in response to these numbers. But as it is, I say that this is a surprisingly solid start to earnings season and a possible sign of new leadership in the entire stock market. Let's go to Chris in Texas. Chris. Hey, Jim. Booyah from Dallas. Uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, Good luck Sunday night. What's going on? Yeah, big game. So I'm sure you're excited. I like um, hey. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a kind guy. I said good luck. I'm not like those Philadelphians who punch <laughs> people and throw rocks and stuff. I say good support your team. What's up? Hey, I wanted to hear your opinion on Rocket as a company, and do you think they're, they're, it's a good long-term holding? Uh, it's terrible. Um, I, I Going back and forth with these guys, uh, when it was at 2018, 17, I don't know, it's six. Could it go to eight? Yeah, but um, I got burned by these guys. And uh, you burn me a couple times, you, you, you don't win my favor. Uh, let's go to Gary in Ohio, please. Gary. Hey, hello, Jim. How are you? I am good, Gary. How about you? Real good. Hey, it's an honor to speak to you, and uh, I highly value your opinions. I like your oh, opinion thank on. You. I'd like your opinion and advice on uh, D Dominion Energy. It's been going down steadily, and will it recoup? Well, I think it yields 4%. It's got good growth prospects. It's one of the better-run utilities. I really like it. The problem is I can get 45 from a two-year treasury. And if I can get 45 from a two-year treasury without any risk, I am going to go for the two-year treasury. Now, three out of four ain't bad, and I'm still holding tight with Morgan Stanley, although I felt the pain today, and it really did kind of, kind of wreck the day. All right, much more mad money ahead, including my exclusive with oil expert, Rusty Brazil. Where could the hot commodity be headed into the end of the year? This guy has been so right on it. I'm discussing one of the best of the best in the industry. Then, finally, someone has jumped the gun on Wall Street, proving that a tough sector might finally be investable. I'll reveal the report and what you should make of it, and you're going to want to know. And all of your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Thing happened recently. OPEC Plus decided to cut oil production by 2 million barrels per day. And while the, the price of crude initially jumped in response, it's come right back down to the mid-80s as of today. And it could be going lower. I think it's a telling move. Don't take it from me, though. Let's check in with my favorite energy analyst, the best there is, Rusty Brazil. He's the founder and executive chairman now at RBN Energy. Get a better read on the situation. Rusty, welcome back to Man Money. Well, thanks for having me again, Jim. All right, so Rusty, our viewers are all confused. They see a two million dollar cut, a two million, two million barrel cut, and the first thing they say is, "Well, I guess yeah. gasoline's yeah. going to go up back to five dollars." None of that happened. As a matter of fact, now oil is like it's going down despite the two million barrels. Could you please explain to them yeah. that it's a new world and that what you see in the papers isn't necessarily what's happening? Well, there's there's a lot going on. First of all, it just so happened, Jim, that today the price of WTI crude oil settled $1 lower 
than it was the day before OPEC made their announcement. So crude oil prices are down. So it's obviously not the same kind of big deal that a lot of people would have you believe. But there's really three reasons that this is happening. One, uh, the two million barrel a day target cut really only means about a million barrels a day of really phys physical cuts because OPEC production was already down about a million barrels a day before below the targets in the first place. So only counts for about half. Second, there's a lot of other things going on You know, at the same time besides the cuts. You've got the EU ban on Russia imports kicking in on uh, December the 5th. Uh, you've got more releases from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve over the next couple of months, so that's pushing prices down. And let's face it, the energy markets have basically priced in a, a mild recession uh, at this point. Right. So if, uh, if we get that, demand's going to be down, particularly for diesel and jet. And then you throw a strong dollar up on top of all of that, and the result has been that two million barrel a day cut has basically had no impact on the market whatsoever. Well, I'm glad you explained it to people because I know that they've been completely mystified uh, and they see a lot of the oil stocks down and figure this might be the time to buy. To me, we have to wait for them to come down a little more. But Rusty, something else is, yeah. is really bothering a lot of our viewers, and that is uh, the president's mad at the Saudis, felt that maybe they should have helped us more. Now the president's thinking about talking to, to Venezuela. But the one thing the president's not doing is talking to the major oil companies in this country, particularly independents. And they are telling me yeah. offline that they can't believe that we're at this moment in history where the president would rather resurrect Venezuela than to talk to our own producers. How is this happening? Well, uh, Jim, as you know, I'm, I'm no politician, so I can't tell you why it's happening. There's no doubt that it is because the uh, the the. Uh, exploration production community, the oil and gas community, has been really disappointed uh, that the, the government didn't come to that that industry and basically say, "We want you to do everything that we can that you can in order to increase production and increase production not just for the short term, not just b before there's an energy transition, but be a part of the energy transition and increase production." in order to be able to provide security of uh, of energy supplies at the same time we're making a transition that really hasn't happened uh, the, the 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 body language hasn't been there and so you see the results uh, basically crude oil production was actually down a little bit in EI EI numbers that came out this week amazing now there's another thing that my colleague David Faber reported on that again there's so many things happening rusty in your world that are just so nutty it looks like that Exxon is now the leader in carbon capture. I'm not kidding. They are doing things that are so aggressive and positive. And yet, again, not getting any recognition in Washington. But at least maybe you can tell people that this is no longer for show. It is no longer greenwash. It's serious. Absolutely. And it's, it's not just Exxon. It, it's, uh, it, it's Oxy. It's Denberry. It's many of the other companies that we've talked about that are looking to the legislations that's been passed and uh, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, and the Infrastructure Act, both of, that, the, both of those pieces of legislation have a lot of encouragement for carbon capture and these companies are going to be a part of it, are going to be a big part of it. And I think it, it is actually a positive considering what could have come out of the administration. So it's a good thing. Whether or not they're getting the recognition for it, well, you'll have to tell me about that. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, I had Mr. Moncrief on recently. Uh, he is, uh, we have a position in Devon from our Travel Trust. Yeah. 
And he was talking about how, look, even if oil spiked to 120, he's not going to produce a lot more because you don't know how volatile it can be. Well, what a great call. Was it 120? Now it's all the way back to the 80s. Could it really go back to the 70s, Rusty? Yeah, yeah, I think it could. Uh, and it all depends on what happens to the economy. Uh, if the, the, uh, if the econ- economy slows, then the demand for diesel is going to slow because companies just have to move less stuff around, right? So they're going right. to they're going to use less diesel. Uh, uh, air travel will probably fall, so you're going to have a decline back in in jet. Probably the only thing that's relatively resilient relative to a a, a slight downturn in the economy is, is gasoline. Gasoline uh, at where we are right now is a heck of a lot cheaper than it was last summer, so you could see the demand for gasoline up a little bit, but other energy products are going to be down some, uh, and you know that's kind of what we could expect, I think. All right, now, Rusty, is there ever a tipping point here within our lifetimes where the oil companies really do have to worry because of EVs? Because right now, EVs are still a very small part of the equation. Well, of course, you'll have to tell me how long you're going to live, Jim, so I'm <laughs> not... Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure how long our lifetimes are, uh, but yeah, I think over the next ten years we're going to see penetration of EVs, and it's going to it's it's going to be a factor uh, for uh, gasoline, the use of gasoline uh, uh, in vehicles. So it's it's going to be a factor. But on the other hand, remember we are producing more gasoline than we use today, and any gasoline that we do produce is going overseas. So you can make the argument that if we are not using it here, it probably goes to. Uh, third world countries that might not be progressing quite so fast as the United States. All right, last question. Sharif Suki was on recently, and he was telling me that, look, if the, if the Europeans would actually lend money to companies like Tellurian uh, and really get the, roll, the uh, ball rolling, he felt that we in the United States could provide enough natural gas to Western Europe by 2026 that maybe they could get out of their jam with Russia. Too aggressive? I think there's a lot of things that would have to happen right uh, in order to be able to get out of the jam by 2026. Uh, they will get out of the jam. They pretty much have to get out of the jam eventually, right? So it's just it's just the time that it takes to build these assets uh, that is going to determine how quickly they can get out of the jam. I think they can probably get out of the jam whether they start lending money to people in the United States or not. All right. Well, terrific. Once again, just a lot of sanity in a very insane world where I think there were a lot of people who felt with that two million barrels, oil was going to be at 110 instantly. No one would have believed, except for you, that it could actually be down (laughs) after the cut. I want to thank Rusty Brazil, the founder and executive chairman of RBN Energy and perhaps the most knowledgeable person I know in the world about oil and gas. Rusty, thank you so much. Thank you, Jim. Man, money be back here for the break. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast-fire lightning round, next. It is time for the lightning round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Skate down and cover the lightning round. Because we're going to start with John in Texas. John. Hi, this is John. Yes, Intuitive Surgical reporting Tuesday. Uh, you know, look, I like Intuitive Surgical, but people don't like that group right now. I'm going to stick by it, though. Let's go to Linda in New York. Linda. 
Hey, Tim, I love your show. Thank you, Linda. What's going on? So my question is, with this sector being where it is now, I want to know your thoughts on Qualcomm. Okay, we had the trim Qualcomm this week. You basically said we have too many semiconductors. I explained it on the Investing Club call. It was painful to do, but I had to cut it back. Let's go to Joseph in California. Joseph! Yes, uh, Jim. I'm curious about Cisco stock. It's down at its low right, The stock's just going down, 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 but the orders are very good. It's got a good balance sheet, and it yields 3%, so I'm going to hold on to it for the travel trunk. And that, ladies and gentlemen, including other Lightning Rounds! Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, did the market miss this link? Why China gained the upper hand in semis? Next. Monday, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. No, no, but I'm going to stay extra in the tent. Okay, that's good. They never let me do that. I mean, we've got a lot of chairs. Today's a big day. You don't like for chairs. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. Finally, someone jumped the gun. I'm talking about how Loop Capital initiated coverage on semiconductor kingpin Micron today with a shocking buy rating. Pronouncing themselves, I quote, ahead of the curve in the semis, end quote. The firm wants to draw a line in the sand, arguing that we're going to see a resurgence in some of the worst stocks in the entire market. They mentioned that Micron's core memory business has experienced a long enough downturn, sharp reduction in estimates, and there are significant capital expenditure cuts ahead, with the stock now now down nearly 50% from its highs. In other words, time to buy! Now, as much as I like to get in early when I think there's a bottom coming, I think this is a premature call and a tough one for most to swallow. I don't blame the analysts here as Micron's valuation is historically low relative to book value. Very important tell of how cheap the stock has really become. But man, the semiconductors are cursed right now. And you know what? There is no end to how cursed they are. That's why I told investing club members on our monthly call just yesterday, you should only own one chip maker at most. I am weary of the semis, but not wary of the semis, because of the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index, the SOX, is already down 45% for the year. When they do eventually turn around, and they will, they tend to move up rather significantly all at once, but it's about timing. And I think the turn is way, way out versus where Kuloop thinks it is. Why? Okay, first, the semis are far more linked to China than we thought a year or two ago, both on the supply chain side and on the demand side. Under President Trump, our government decided to bash China with tariffs. Under President Biden, we're now trying to destroy their war machine so they can't invade Taiwan. These days, our leaders treat China like it's officially the enemy, and we don't want them getting their hands on our high-quality chips. So it's very hard to justify owning a semiconductor stock that may now need a license to operate in the PRC, especially since we have no idea what the criteria for that license will be. There is some good news in the industry. NVIDIA is allowed to sell its new graphics chips, the ones that launched today, into China. I was surprised at that. Our government's not blocking everything. But uh, I don't think it matters all that much when you consider that we're probably looking at a data center slowdown. And that's not yet priced in the stocks. It's no wonder that NVIDIA stock was down another 7 bucks today. 61% for the year. 
Second, there was a huge amount of double ordering in this group when things were better. Buyers were afraid that they wouldn't get their allocation of chips, so they ordered much more than they needed. Now the customers are saying, whoa, we're full up, and they don't need any more. We're only realizing this now, so there will be charges galore on that inventory. Again, not good. Third, while we're now seeing a big cut in capital expenditures, that's true, there are still tons of new chips being made to the point where the inventory is nowhere near running out. It takes a couple of quarters for those cuts to play out. Against all this, we have the fact that Micron stock is slightly above where it was trading when it last reported, despite the downbeat calibration of the future. That's it's tempting. But what matters isn't the stock price. It's the customers. And I think they're frozen for now. But both the, uh, the slowdown on the economy, but also the China situation. Look, a global economic slowdown does not help the buying of semiconductors. If you make a semiconductor for any high-performance computing device, you're going to be cut off from China, even if you may not even know it yet. Plus, the administration is being fairly capricious about what counts as a high-performance computer. We just don't even know enough. In other words, China's not going to be a big market for the semiconductor industry anytime soon. And if it's indeed as losses, I think it will be very hard for the stocks to return to the previous highs. So so I do this. Watch, Micron. Don't move yet. See if it starts moving down next week when other semis report. Ultimately, I think the stock can make a massive move higher when the time is right. But for now, I think loops too early. And I prefer to sell the semis into strength rather than sticking your neck out to buy them into weakness. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. And I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you Monday. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. Now. 